0: Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say, the Kresge's just read a paraphrase of Isaiah 53, a direct prophecy about Jesus written almost 700 years before He was born. We're in the middle of our Christmas series called Christmas Foretold, and we're going through just a few of the hundreds of of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he lived. But before we get into today's sermon, I want to play a game of the price is right. Okay? So the question is, what does it cost? So what I'd like you to do is if you're next to somebody, say your guess to them, and whoever gets closest, they can get a thumbs up or something. So this is the first one. Alright, so this is the price at Meyer on Friday. So tell your price to someone next to you. All right, a dollar nineteen. These used to be sixty-nine cents. What does the world come to? All right, next uh, we have your plain Meyer bread, and then we have gluten-free bread. Both at Meyer on Friday. Guess the price of both of those things. So just plain Meyer bread and gluten-free bread. All right, I don't have all day, so here we go. This was 179 This was $599. 3 times the price and one-third as delicious. All right, next we have a beautiful Honda Odyssey. It was the first uh, Honda Odyssey that popped up. It's a 2012, but it has 221,000 miles on it. Okay? How much do you think that car cost? 221,000 miles on it. Alright. Last final answers. $9,000. Used car market's crazy. How about a new Tesla? Alright. So there's three models. So I want you to guess what the lowest model costs and what the highest model costs. So real quick. Alright. So Alright, that's good. So the lowest model, lowest you can get is 47,000. The Model S is 142,000. So, quite a few, quite a big difference. Now, I thought, okay, the housing market's a little busy. I looked up on Realtor.com, uh, the first house that showed up on Realtor.com. I just said houses in Grand Rapids. Tim, you better get this one right. Uh, so, this is in East Grand Rapids. It's a four bedroom, two bath, thirteen hundred square feet, but it does have a basement that's not finished, so that doesn't count toward it. it. Has a dirt driveway but a concrete pad in front of the attached garage. So put your best guess to the person next to you. Alright. If you guessed four hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars you would be correct. Lastly, this is the HGTV Dream Home in two thousand twenty two. Oh, in the mountains of Virginia, one quick guess, real quick, and then i got to move on. All right, it was just under $2 million. So, as we think about cost, uh, inflation has been hitting all of us. You know, grocery trips that used to cost $100 might cost 130 to $150 now. A tank full of gas that used to cost $30 might cost $60 now. Meals at McDonald's that used to cost $6 now cost $8 to $12. Uh, For Carr's birthday yesterday, we went to Culver's and to feed all six of us, it was more expensive than if Sandy and I went to a steakhouse. (laughs) Costs are going up everywhere. But I have an important question for you today as you think about costs. What does your sin cost? What would be the cost to wipe away every single sin that you've ever committed? What does your sin cost? Before we try to answer that question, let's pray. God, we're so thankful for the passage of Scripture that the Kresge's just read. The truth of that Scripture. And Lord, as we open Your Word today... Help us to be struck by the profoundness of what You paid for us. More than anything we could ever afford. And so as we open Your Word, I just pray that You'd move in our hearts today. In Your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever read a passage of the Scriptures and been confused? I know I have. One day there was this guy, he was riding in a chariot. Most likely his servants were driving it and he was riding down the road. He was, he was an Ethiopian and he was actually in charge of the treasury of the Queen of Ethiopia. And as he was riding down the road, he was reading a scroll. The prophet Isaiah. Unbeknownst to him, an angel had gone to Philip the Apostle and told Philip the Apostle, go down this very road. And when Philip was traveling down the road, the Holy Spirit led Philip to walk up to the chariot. And when he walked up to the chariot, he asked the man, what are you reading? He said, well, I'm reading Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And this was the man's response. How can I, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading, which we all look at today. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived justice. Who could speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is this prophet talking about? himself, or someone else. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Beginning with Isaiah 53, Philip walked through and explained who Jesus was. And immediately the eunuch recognized that this Jesus was the Lord of all and the one he wanted to give his life to. And he saw some water on the side of the road and he said "Philip," to Philip, is there anything stopping us from me just going and getting baptized now? And Philip said, no. And he was baptized. This chapter of the Scriptures forever changed that man's life. And for 2,700 years, that's how long ago that chapter was written, in the last 2,000 years, that Scripture has continued to change lives over and over again and over again some have called it the most important chapter in the old testament some scholars have called it the, the fifth gospel polycarp one of the one of the apostle john's students called it the golden passional of the old testament martin luther believed every christian should memorize this chapter this passage is quoted by jesus himself it's in all four of the gospels and in more than half of the New Testament books. Every part of it is in the New Testament. One pastor called Isaiah 53 the Romans of the Old Testament because it gives us a clear picture of what is required for for salvation. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It's also been called the torture chamber of the Jews. Until about the 11th century, this passage was consistently interpreted by Jewish rabbis as a prophecy about the Messiah. In fact, the Talmud, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus came, taught that Isaiah 53 was about the coming Messiah. The Aramaic Targums, which were written between uh, the 1st and 7th century A.D. And they were the first Aramaic translation from the Hebrew of the Old Testament. They translated verse 13 as, Behold, My servant Messiah shall prosper. But in the 11th century, when Rabbi Rashi wrote his commentary, he recognized that everybody was saying, This has to be talking about Jesus And if this truly was talking about the Messiah, then this description would clearly articulate who Jesus is. And so he came up with a new interpretation that the servant was Israel. And since that time, uh, Hebrew rabbis have continued to teach that this chapter is about Israel. Israel. But Israel doesn't make sense here. Israel wasn't sinless. Israel wasn't fully righteous. They didn't suffer for the sake of someone else. They didn't suffer to pay for sins. No matter how you read it, you can't justify interpreting this passage about anybody other than Jesus. But why is this chapter so important? Why is it quoted so often? Why did it lead to the eunuch's salvation? Well, this is the the fourth of the servant songs in Isaiah. And just before this, the verses just before this poem, it concluded the teaching of God's comfort to the nation of Israel. See, God was comforting the Israelites that even though they had sinned, even though they would experience all of this um, justice and judgment, that God was not going to permanently alienate them. That He would provide a way. To bring them back. That through the arm of the Lord, is the phrase used in the previous chapters, He would restore His people. And beginning in this poem, God is going to show who the arm of the Lord is. That it actually is Jesus. And that He is going to be the one that brings about redemption. But that redemption wouldn't just be for the Israelites. It would be for the whole world. Shockingly, though, this arm of the Lord was not going to be a victorious king riding in on a horse, but a humble servant that came to die. And so the poem begins, actually, in chapter fifty-two. It's a sometimes when they put the chapter markings, they don't put the break in the right spot. And so in fifty-two verse thirteen, we begin this first stanza of the poem, which is the in introduction. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up high and highly exalted. This starts out how you think it would start about the Messiah. He's going to act wisely. He's going to be raised up. He's going to be exalted. That's what we think is supposed to happen with the Messiah. That's what we think about a king. The Jews viewed this coming Messiah as a king like David. What kind of attributes would you think a king would have? Strength, charisma, popularity, influence, affluence, all these different things. But as we mentioned last week, Jesus came as a servant. Listen to these descriptions of Jesus in verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at Him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and His form marred beyond any human likeness. Now so often we, we pull ourselves away from the hearing of the first audience. Because we've heard these things so many times. But imagine being in Israel in that time. The northern kingdom has fallen to Assyria. In, earlier in Isaiah, he had predicted the southern kingdom would fall to Babylon. <coughs> Sorry, that was loud. <laughs> and so there's this promise of judgment. But here's the hope. Judgment and hope all throughout Isaiah. Judgment and hope. There's going to be this Messiah that will come. And so you're reading it. He's going to be exalted. This is good news. Wait. People are going to be appalled at Him? What does it mean His appearance is going to be disfigured beyond that of any human being? His form marred beyond human likeness as Jesus hung on the cross, brutally beaten and only lasting a few hours on the cross because He had been brutally flogged almost to the point of death. Marred beyond human likeness. But how does this description of Jesus continue. It says in verse 15, "...He will sprinkle many nations, and the kings will shut their mouths because of Him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Just as many were appalled, more would benefit. On the Day of Atonement, the, the priest would go and make a sacrifice and sprinkle the blood in the altar on the altar." go into the Holy of Holies. And here Jesus is coming to sprinkle many nations, to save people from every nation, tribe, tongue, to cleanse them of their sins. But the way in which He does it, it will leave people dumbfounded, speechless. And so, the next four chapters, beginning in Isaiah 53... We'll explain what Jesus did. We'll see that He entered humanity and experienced rejection. That He took our sins and our punishment. That He died a perfect death and that He rose victorious and offers salvation to all of us. First, He entered humanity and experienced experienced rejection. Starting in verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In Isaiah 51, the arm of the Lord describes God's action in Exodus. In Isaiah 52, God, in a sense, rolls up His sleeves. He bears His holy arm for the nations so they will see His power and salvation. But here we found that the arm of the Lord is revealed when Jesus appears. Who could have seen this coming? the lord himself god himself come as flesh god will be the messiah he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground he had no majesty no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him not only was he the arm of the lord but he was fully human fully god fully human he he grew up like a tender shoot. We looked at last week. He was born as a baby. needing to be taken care of. He grew in wisdom and stature. And, his, he, and like a root out of dry ground, he came from the root of David. He had a, a lineage. This king, this Messiah, was not an oppressive or attractive man. He wasn't like King Saul. A head taller than everybody else and very handsome and strong. Verse 3, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus was mistreated physically, emotionally, rejected spiritually. He wasn't given a fair trial. They put him on a legal trial. They accused him of things that he did not do. The crowds yelled and mocked and called him names. This idea of being held in low esteem is an accounting phrase in Hebrew regarding value. Like asking how much is a Snickers or a car or a house or, or, or these other things. How much are they worth? The Jews said Jesus had very little value. Worth. He was despised and rejected. So he entered humanity and experienced rejection, and they took our sins and our punishment. Verses 4 to 6. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. In the Greek, this surely is meant to show this unexpectedness. The arm of the Lord willingly come to suffer. Willingly come to be rejected. Willingly come to die. Jesus didn't suffer because He deserved punishment. He never sinned. He suffered because He took our pain. In Leviticus 16, this phrase refers to accepting a burden as one's own. It was our burden to carry, and He took it upon Himself. He bore our suffering. He was stricken by God. He was afflicted by God. Imagine the crowd. Think about it. Put yourself in that place. As the people yelled accusations, they were thinking to themselves, He's getting what He deserved. He shouldn't have claimed to be Messiah. He shouldn't have claimed to be God. He's blasphemous. He needs to be murdered. He needs to be executed. They thought that He was suffering for something He did. Was He? No. He was suffering for something we did. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked you, how much does your sin cost? This much. As the nail was put between the wrists to hold Him there, that was for your sin. As He was beaten to the point of death, that was for your sin. As for... Hours And every time he had to breathe, he had to pull up, putting pressure on his wrists and on his feet where the nails were driven. And that was paying the cost for your sin. He chose to suffer to pay the cost that we can never afford. He took our pain. He bore Our suffering. That was the cost of your sin. That was the cost of my sin that He willingly took up. The poem continues by saying He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Transgressions and iniquities are just another way to say sin. For our sin. For our mistakes. For our rebellions. He was crushed. He was pierced. That is what our sin cost. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Jesus was the substitute for us. His atonement was what provided us peace. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. Last week we talked about Jesus was the Prince of Peace. Because of what He did, we can have peace. Thomas, after Jesus appeared to the other disciples, didn't believe Him when they said, yeah, we saw Jesus. He says, unless I see His wounds, I won't believe. And Jesus showed up. he said to Thomas, feel my hands. Feel my side. This is what I did to pay the price for you. By His wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. We were the ones that went astray, and yet He was the one that paid the price. The Father treated Jesus like He was the one that had sinned. He treated Jesus like you and I deserved Jesus paid the cost. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, fulfilling Psalm 32. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Every other place in the New Testament, when he cries out, when he talks to God, he calls him my father. That's the only place where he calls him my God. I don't know this for certain, but I almost wonder if it's at that moment that He was taking up our sins and our iniquities and He was experiencing our pain and all the mistakes that we've made all of our lives. He was taking our punishment at that very moment. Now the Hebrew here, even emphasizes this by, by the singular He. He did this. Jesus alone did this. He took our pain. He paid the penalty for our mistakes. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He paid the cost. He entered humanity and experienced rejection. He took on our sins and our punishment. And He died a perfect death. Verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Again, what we see in the prophecy in the Old Testament is specific things that will be fulfilled By Jesus. Jesus stood silent before the Sanhedrin as they accused him. He stood silent before Pilate as he was accused. He stood silent before Herod when he was accused. Because like a sheep before his shears, the Lamb of God, who came to save the sins of the world, went to slaughter. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He wasn't given a fair trial. There were false witnesses. And then he was put to death, cut off from the land of the living. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit. In his mouth now this is something I had never noticed before. Uh, when Romans, when they would crucify someone, they would typically bury them in mass graves. It was part of the way to dishonor the person, to dishonor their family, so they'd be crucified and buried in mass graves. So when it says he was assigned a grave with the wicked, that's plural, multiple wicked. and with the rich, singular in the Hebrew in his death. Because Joseph Arimathea said, I'll take them, I'll put them in my tomb. One guy, Joseph, picked them out. It's amazing even the specificity of the prophecy of the New Testament or the Old Testament. Though he'd done no violence, so there there was no deceit in his mouth. We see that Jesus entered humanity and experienced rejection. He took on our sins and punishment. He died a perfect death. And lastly, He rose victorious and offered salvation. Verse 10, It was the Lord's will to crush Him and cause Him to suffer. And though the Lord makes His life an offering for sin. He will see His offspring and prolong His days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in His hands. At first, this sounds really harsh. The Lord is going to crush His Son, God the Father, willingly. It's His will to cause Jesus to suffer. As a parent, I don't, I don't ever want to see my sons suffer. I, don't want, I definitely don't want to watch them die. But God the Father cast aside His grief, knowing the cost that had to be paid, and knowing the results. Even Jesus, even though He was in agony, and asking, is there any other way for this cup to pass from Me? But He says, not My will, but Yours be done. In Hebrews 12, it says, Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before Him. He knew the agony that was before Him, but He also knew the joy that was on the other end. You know, sometimes we allow our kids to suffer or go through hardship when we know it's for their benefit. Or for the benefit of others. God the Father and God the Son both did this for our benefit. They both paid the cost. And now we are His offspring. We once strayed like sheep, but now we've been welcomed in as children. As heirs, as ancestors. Adopted into His family. Verse 11, after he has suffered. Now this Hebrew word here means suffering in the entire being. It doesn't just mean like my arm hurts. It means your entire being is suffered. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. It could be phrased, because he had suffered, he will see the light of life. He will rise again and be satisfied. Why? Because he paid it. There's a reason why he said it is finished. I love this quote. God the Father and Jesus the Son knew the results of the cross would be that millions of people who would believe in that finished work would be forever and ever gathered around the throne in heaven. And you are part of that joy, part of that satisfaction if you believe in Jesus. As God could look through the lens of history and see those of us who believe in Jesus could say, Father, it's worth it. It's worth it because I get to buy them and they'll become your children. He will be satisfied. He will see the light of his labor. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. A better translation might be By the knowledge of him many will be justified. Jesus said in John 17, This is eternal life, that you may that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That's how we're truly satisfied, is that we know Jesus. If we've come to know him and come to follow him, he will pay the cost. He did pay the cost, so we could be justified. Verse 12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils among the strong. One scholar thinks the Hebrew would better be translated, Therefore I will apportion to him the many. That's us as believers. And the strong he will apportion as a spoil. In John 6, Jesus said, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. In Romans 8 it says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. If we put our faith and trust in Christ, all our sins are washed away, and one day we will be glorified as well. Because, why is Jesus, why is this servant given these blessings? Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In other words, he paid the cost. As I wrap up the sermon, you may think, Phil, what in the world? This is a we're Christmas. Why are you giving an Easter sermon in Christmas? But do you realize that one third of Matthew one. 3rd of Mark, one fourth of Luke, and half of the Gospel of John are about the last week of Jesus. Because this was the reason He came. When we celebrate that little baby boy born in a manger, when we gather around our Christmas trees and we open presents, we're doing that to remember the greatest gift ever given. And the reason why He's the greatest gift ever ever given is because what He accomplished in His death and resurrection. And so these passages in the Old Testament that point forward to this Jesus, they point forward to a reason for hope. Because Jesus entered humanity and experienced rejection. He took our sins and our punishment. He died a perfect death. And He rose Victorious, And now He offers salvation to every single one of us. As we think about inflation, the cost of Snickers and bread and cars and houses, I ask you to consider this question. How much does sin cost? And my answer is this much. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, He said a few things. While taking on our sin, He said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? When He looked down the crowd and saw them yelling at Him, He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But then it's this phrase that always gets me. It is finished. That means that when you trust in Christ, you don't take out a mortgage. You don't say, God, I know I'm going to keep sinning, so I'm going to find a way that I can pay for my sins as I go along. What's the interest cost? No, when Jesus said it is finished, he said, Paid in full. This is the astounding thing about this baby boy that was born in Bethlehem. Is that he came because we have a debt we can never pay. It's way more expensive than that HGTV home in the mountains. It's an impossible debt. But the servant came to suffer and die and pay the cost. But it's paid in full. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. So today, you you can't do enough to pay that debt. It's impossible. But if you believe in Jesus, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Because He already paid it. And if you're someone here who's already made that decision and you go shopping this Christmas, and you you look at how expensive everything is, and every time you complain about the cost of gas, maybe just in the back of your mind, maybe have that thought. He paid the cost for me. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to get so caught up in everything else going on that Christmas just becomes something that we do like every other holiday. It becomes about the music and about the fun and about the get-togethers, but really it's about a little baby boy that was born for a purpose to pay the penalty that we could not pay. How much does your sin cost? An impossible amount. But Jesus paid it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm so thankful that You paid that cost. A cost I could never afford. A price that I could never pay. Lord, if there's anyone in here today or anybody listening online recognize that they can't do enough good things to pay the price for their sins. They can't earn their way to salvation. But we have a great Messiah. A servant who came and paid the price. He said, it is finished. For those of us that Know You are ready. Lord, help us to walk in thankfulness and gratefulness. That our forgiveness is not based on what we do, but on what You've already done. And that You love us so much, You willingly went to the cross to pay that penalty that we could not pay. Help us to live in forever gratitude, Lord. In Your name we pray. Amen.